Good morning. I'm going to show you a picture of 16th Street Baptist Church in the middle of downtown Birmingham, Alabama. In the 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement, people would assemble at this church to march against segregation. This church began to serve as uh, headquarters for these marchers as a symbol of this movement towards justice and equality. But because of this, it also became a target of the Ku Klux Klan. In September 1963, Birmingham faced a federal court order to admit the first black students to three different public schools. Obviously, this was not positively accepted by everyone. Sunday morning, September 15, 1963, was Youth Day at the church, where the youth of the church were going to plan and they were going to lead the morning service for everyone. Four young girls dressed in dazzling white left their Sunday school class to head down into the basement to prepare for the service. At 10.22 a.m., there was a sound like thunder, and the whole building shook. Four members of the United Clans of America had tunneled under the church and placed 19 sticks of dynamite under what turned out to be the girls' restroom. Four girls, Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, were killed as the building collapsed on them and an additional 22 people were injured. Now, this marked a turning point in the U.S. Uh, civil rights movement. It brought a new awareness. Uh, it opened people's eyes to what was happening. On July 2nd, 1964, President Johnson signed in to act the Civil Rights Act of 1964, ensuring equal rights of African Americans before the law. Tomorrow, Tomorrow, we honor the life and legacy of another man who gave his life for the same advancement of equality and justice. But in the aftermath of this horrific act, mourners looked for some kind of symbol to make sense of things, some kind of uh, this senseless violence, and they, they were looking for something, and their eyes were drawn towards one specific part of the partially destroyed building. See, the explosion blew a hole in the church's rear wall. It destroyed the back steps. It, it knocked out all of the stained glass windows save for one. The lone window that survived the explosion was one depicting a scene from Scripture where Jesus Christ is knocking on a door. And this stained glass window was intact except for one part. Do you see it? What's missing? While the, window, while the window still stood, the bomb had blown straight through the face of Jesus Christ. And where once was the face of Jesus, the blast had left only a gaping hole. What do you do when the face of Jesus becomes hard to see? When it changes? Maybe you've seen the face of Christ before, but then all of a sudden something comes into your life unexpected that kind of rips everything apart and you can't see him anymore. Or maybe his face where it once was so clear to you is now just a gaping hole. Or maybe you've been watching him and you just can't get a handle on what he looks like. What is he doing? Where is he? What do you do when the face of Christ is changing? We are revisiting now and returning to the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark wrote a gospel of the account of Jesus Christ, what he did and why. And he's asking three questions that we've been trying to answer as we walk through this book. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does that mean for my life? Now, in the, in the fall, we walked through the first eight chapters of Mark where it seems like the dominating question is, who is Jesus? And no one can figure it out. We saw his disciples begin to recognize that and begin to see the face of Jesus and come to understand who he was. But now, as the disciples understand who he is, they begin to answer that last question. Well, well wait a minute. If he's really who, this, who he says he is, what does that mean for our life? And that's what the next five to seven weeks are going to be here at Pulpit Rock, is walking with Jesus as he begins to turn our hearts towards that question. Now, Jonathan and Kyle kicked off 2020 challenging us to own our own spiritual journey and to take the the next steps this year in our following of Christ. I especially like something Kyle said. Kyle said, we don't need a perfect strategy or five-point spiritual growth plan to become who God created us to be. We just need what? A next step. That's what's happening in the Gospel of Mark today. We're turning away from that question, not just turning away from it, but turning somewhat from the question, who is Jesus, to saying, what is my next step? What is following Christ going to look like, especially as that face that we're following may change? Now, as we go back to the story of Jesus, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to revisit. Why, why do we spend so much time here talking about Christ? Why do we go back to him and his story? And I, I like the message version of Hebrews. I want to read something to you. It says this, Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was heading. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he, put up, he could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline in your souls. Can you tell that's the message version of the Bible? At Pulpit Rock, we believe keeping our eyes on Jesus will shoot adrenaline into our souls. And that is why we return to this story of Jesus that we are going over again, item by item. Last fall, we did that, and we saw kind of this arrival of Christ, his baptism, his temptations, his calling of his followers, his healings, his debates with religious leaders, his miraculous feedings of thousands of people, and all of it was to display what Jesus announced in his first spoken words in this gospel. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and trust the good news. We begin to see that his coming has redefined for us what good news is. And so we ended the first act of the story, November, and we begin act two today, right in the middle of a story. Now, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. If you're using the study guide, the translation that I'm going to be uh, drawing from today is found in here on page 187. And as you turn there, I want to set you up that today's narrative is bracketed. We're going to see something at the beginning of it, and we're going to see something at the end of it, and they're both these brackets of an affirmation of Jesus and who he is. On one side of the bracket is this climactic moment we ended on last fall when Peter, the rock, dared to voice out loud what he was seeing in the face of Jesus. Remember when he said this? But who? But you, who do I say that I am? Rock answers him. You are the anointed one. 
Now, this is such a climactic moment that we go, wow, they finally got it. Oh, great. They finally got it. No, not really. This is where they started to begin to get it, of who his face really was. And Jesus follows that statement with a surprise. As soon as Peter says, you are the anointed one, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Savior, you're the one, you're the one, Jesus immediately explains that he has to die. Look at Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them. I always thought this was a funny phrase because I thought, well, what's he been doing for eight chapters? But now that they get it, now he began to teach them. That it's necessary for the son of humanity to suffer many things, to be rejected by elders and chief priests and scholars, to be killed, and after three days to rise again. Jesus just spoiled the end of Mark's story. Now, he was speaking the word openly, but taking him aside, Rock began to reprimand him. Reprimand is such a gentle, kind word, right? Actually, in the language that's being spoken of here, he is... He is condemning Christ in the strongest words possible. Jesus, there's no way in that you're going to do that. That's not going to happen to you. Don't talk like that. Peter's confession has now turned into Peter's confusion. But turning around and seeing his students, he reprimanded rock. And he says, get behind me, you accuser. You are not considering God's affairs, but human affairs. Now, in Peter's defense, this, this statement of Jesus that he's going to die made no sense at all. You see, what they had been waiting for, even what they've been growing up learning all their lives as kids and longing for and longing for for years, is that these prophecies that were told uh, to their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' fathers' fathers, these prophecies that one day a Messiah would come, and when the Messiah comes, he's going to put down all the evil, he's going to throw down all the, the wrongdoers, and he's going to protect us and raise us up and rescue us. They also had some prophecies about a servant that was going to suffer, but, you know, these are like two different people. No one had ever before really drawn the dots together and said, could these be the same person? Could the Messiah that's going to come as a king also be a servant that's going to come and die? This is why Peter responds so strongly, because the Messiah that suffers and dies is not the face he's been following. All last fall, chapters 1 through 8, we saw this Jesus of power, right? He speaks to demons and they flee. He heals people. He raises the people from the dead. And this is a man of power. But after Peter's confession, something begins to change and we see a different Jesus. His face is changing. But there's more to come because in the ancient world of this time, uh, there was an expectation that followers would look like the one that they follow, they would follow his teachings, his mannerisms, they would take on what he does. So if you knew what Jesus did, you would know what the followers would do. Your life would take on his likeness. And Jesus says, well, here's the next steps of following me. Calling for the crowd along with the students, he said to them, if any want to come behind me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life because of me and the good news will save it. It's as if Jesus is saying, well, now that you understand who I am, here are your next steps. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Lose your life. These are not fun next steps. 
I looked through our reflection guide and the next steps we're offering you for next year, and none, none of those four were on there. These aren't steps that we expect, and they weren't the steps the disciples expected either. This is not the face they've been following. This face is changing and falling apart. And he said to them, I assure you, some of those standing here will not taste death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, there's something interesting that you see here. In in three of the four Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In three of the four Gospels, that exact statement is used to introduce the story I'm about to tell you. And each time it's told in the immediate context of questions about who Jesus is and about Jesus starting to talk about suffering. So all these three things happen together, and then we have this story. Mark 9, 1. And after six days... I want to pause here for a second because I wanted to tell you something about the book of Mark. Um, You understand, as we've talked about some this fall, that the Gospels were not written just to have some historical accounts. These are not just Jesus did this and then this and then this and then this. Yes, they represent historical accounts of what happened with Jesus. The Gospels were written because the eyewitnesses were dying. We had to capture this stuff. But Gospels are written with a purpose. They have an agenda behind them. They have a, a reason for existing, and that is to help people answer those questions. Who was Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean for our lives? And so each Gospel has a different flair to it, a little flavor to it, and they, they focus on some different things. One thing that Mark has done a lot in his Gospel is he likes to connect Jesus with Moses. He likes to kind of draw those attachments to them. And so Moses is kind of like a... a, like a, a, a a prefigure of Christ in, to Mark. And so when he uses this phrase six days, I think, in my opinion, he's reminding us of the story of Moses going up on the Mount Sinai way back in Exodus 24. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So six, after six days is kind of cueing us that we're about to hear some divine human communication. So I just want you to make sure you're ready for this. Six days, Moses, a mountain, a cloud, and the Lord shows up. Six days, Moses, a mountain, a cloud, and the Lord shows up. Moses, mountain, a cloud, and the Lord shows up. After six days, Jesus takes Rock and James and John and brings them up to a high mountain alone by themselves. And he was transformed before them. And his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, such as no launderer on earth can so whiten. His face changed. And for a moment, these three got to see not who they thought Jesus was, not who they wanted Jesus to be, but who Jesus has been all along. And Elijah appeared with them, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Why, why are Elijah and Moses here? I don't know. Some different theories are out there. One that I like the best is kind of that, that Elijah represents the prophets of old and Moses represents the law. And it's like they're both there to say, look, the prophets and the law, which you so revere in your faith, these were just precursors. We were just setting the stage. We're just the backdrop. Here's the main event. I like that theory. By the way, um, I think I've mentioned this, but Mark is my favorite gospel. And it's not just because it's the shortest. It's because Mark doesn't do what I want him to do. Mark doesn't give me enough detail about the things I want detail on. Mark skimps out on the dialogue. Like this verse right here. 
Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus. What did they say? Give us something. I'd love to hear it. But something we've noticed about Mark is he often seems a little less interested in what Jesus said and did as he is in how people responded to what Jesus said and did, which makes sense because that's what he's wanting from us is I want you to respond. So instead of this conversation, instead of this amazing dialogue that we could have had recorded, Mark chooses to go with how Peter responded. So what did, what did Peter say to this? And in reply, Rock says to Jesus, Rabbi, um, it's good to be here. Thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> that's, that's great. I just think this is so funny that in history, this is what Peter's comment is in this moment. Hey, it's good to be here. You know that, that, that kind of party question you have sometime where you're like, okay, if you could have dinner with any three people from history, who would it be? And you're like, oh, it would be the President Lincoln. Oh, it would be oh, this guy and this guy. And these are the, this is the ultimate answer to that question for a Jewish man like Peter. You mean I get to have Elijah, the greatest prophet? I get to have Modus, M Moses, the lawbringer, and I get to have Jesus, who I just identified six days ago as the Messiah? That's the greatest party ever. And he goes, yeah, it was really good that we're here, huh? <laughs> Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and we should make huts. Let's make huts, three of them, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, some scholars translate Rock's statement as a question. Like maybe he's, maybe he's asking Jesus, Rabbi, do you, would you like us to go build some huts for you guys? See, that word hut is actually the word tabernacle. A tabernacle is kind of like a portable temple. It, it, it's a, a little place of worship you would set up. And, you know, you're not at the temple, you're not at the synagogue, you're out in the wilderness. Well, let's just set up a little place of worship. Back on Mount Sinai in Exodus, we just read a few minutes ago, after God's glory came down, the people built a tabernacle. So maybe that's what Peter's thinking. He's like, oh, well, we'll just build a little, some worship places. But I'll be honest, I am not sure what Peter meant. I don't think anyone knows what Peter meant. I don't think Peter knows what he meant. Because as Mark points out next, the only reason that Peter said anything at all was this. He did not know what to reply, for they became terrified. So the best he could come up with is, hey, this, this is good. Maybe seeing the face of Jesus change, he just had to say something, but he didn't know what to say. And there was a cloud, there was a cloud overshadowing them. So we all know what's coming next. There was a voice from the cloud, this is my precious son, listen to him. Moses, a mountain, a cloud, the Lord shows up. You know, this, this reminds me of Mount Sinai and that experience. It also reminds me of the moment of baptism of Jesus, remember? Where this voice comes out of heaven and declares uh, who he is. This is that moment we were talking about. It started with Peter saying, you are the anointed one. And it, it, this moment ends with God saying, this is the anointed one. That's who he is. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus alone. <clears throat> and as they were going down the mountain... He ordered them explicitly not to describe to anyone what they saw until after the Son of Humanity has risen up from the dead. Man, can you imagine coming down the mountain, these three? They had to be full of questions and, and, and did, you see, did you see this? Did you, I, wow. 
and they couldn't stop talking. And they were probably also rehearsing what the story was going to be because they were going to get down the mountain and the disciples were going to go, so what, how was it? That was good. It was great. Well, tell me more. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, don't tell anyone anything until after. This is the Jesus we've seen all through Mark up to this point. Every time he does something, he goes, shh, don't tell. Shh. Why'd you got healed? No, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. For the first time now, he says, okay, I'm going to tell you, it'll be okay to tell people this after. After you see the whole story. After you realize that this story was bigger than you thought. After my face has changed again. After. Then you can tell the story. And they kept the matter to themselves, and they were discussing what rising up from the dead meant. Now, don't overlook the fact that these disciples are beginning to ask better questions. What does is, what is rising up from the dead mean? What does rising up from the dead mean for this world? What does his rising up from the dead mean for me? As we continue over the next few weeks to talk about becoming into the likeness of Christ, I'm convinced that happens as we begin to ask better questions. So what do we, what do we kind of do with this story today? I'd like to submit this, that the face of Jesus is changing for those that are with him every day. That the face of Jesus is changing for those who are with him every day. As we continue to, to item by item through the story of Jesus in Mark, you're going to notice these stories don't change at all. They're the same stories. The stories of Jesus' teaching and healing and suffering, they're the same stories. For some of you who grew up with these stories, these are the same second grade Sunday school stories you heard. They don't change. But we change in how we see them. And I hope we're different as we see them. I hope we're different as we enter into them, as we see his face change, as he becomes different than we thought or sometimes hard to see. I hope you trust and know that all that you and I know is not all that there is to know. There is so much more awareness of his face to see. The good is still to come. And that's why we revisit the story of Jesus. It revitalizes us. Shoots adrenaline in our souls. I listened to a podcast recently with a guy who was talking about his marriage. And he said, I've been married for 34 years, but I'm not married to the same woman today as I was 34 years ago. It's the same person. She's the same woman, but she's not the same. And I'm not the same. He went on and said, I think that she's changed a lot during these 34 years. And when people ask me, how did you manage to stay married to the same woman for so long? I answer that they are wrong. She is not the girl I met in 1979. Those of you who are or have been married, how have you changed? For the better? Maybe some for the worse? You're not the same person you each married, right? You change, you grow for... You see their faces differently. A few weeks ago, Jonathan reminded us uh, that change is not always a bad thing, but it often feels like loss, right? Richard Rohr writes this about change. The word change normally refers to new beginnings, but transformation more than often happens 
more often happens not when something new begins, but when something old falls apart. The pain of something old falling apart, disruption, chaos, invites the soul to listen at a deeper level. It invites and sometimes forces the soul to go to a new place because the old place isn't working anymore. But it doesn't feel good and it does not feel like God. And we will do anything to keep the old thing from falling apart. Then he said this, in, in these moments of insecurity and crisis, shoulds and oughts don't really help. They just increase the shame, guilt, pressure, and likelihood of backsliding. It's the deep yeses that carry you through. Focusing on something you absolutely believe in, that you're committed to, will help you wait it out. For these disciples that morning, true transformation started when their face of Jesus began to fall apart. They wanted to do anything to keep the old thing from falling apart, even if it meant building some huts. But what Jesus was giving them was a powerfully deep yes they could focus on amidst all this change, the son of humanity rising from the dead. So as we continue to enter 2020, looking how we can take steps towards the likeness of Christ in our lives, let me ask you two questions. How is the face of Christ changing for you? I hope it is. I hope you're continuing to see newness. And I hope sometimes even in the, the, the gaping hole, you trust what's there. And how is this face of Christ changing you? I hope also that as you look into his likeness, that it's changing you. You know, his face changes us when we bring to God our, our destructiveness, our prejudice, our hatred, our ignorance. When we bring to God everything in our lives that's not glorious, that's not beautiful, everything that's not dazzling white. When we bring to God our endless pride and our explosive anger, and just when we expect God to break us, the Son of God is broken instead. Look once more at the window. You see the light shining through the jagged edges. The face of Christ, while empty, is full of glorious light. This is the Jesus you follow this year. One whose likeness may change. And the thing about faces is this. You have to get up close and personal to see them. Let's keep looking at his likeness. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I will confess my comfort is often found in the familiarity of your face. When your face changes in ways I don't anticipate, expect, or want, I don't like it. But I'm opening my heart to you this morning, Christ, to say I am open to the fact that your changing face is changing me.